Now, back into the Word, I was mentioning, we had one more. We, we started this incarnation series, God, and, and, and it blows my mind that God came near. That, that, that captures it. God came near to, to in, in, in the Word becoming flesh, translating God into humanity so that we could know God. The, the Word becomes flesh like us, so that we could see what humanity really is, truly is, what God created humanity to be in bearing his image in Jesus' truly human life. God came near in the person of Jesus that he might redeem us, that he would draw us back to himself. God came near. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. He came to give us that divine life that is only lived in the power of the Spirit. Even as Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, so also. The Spirit is not, not merely upon us, but indwelling us. That the life of Jesus continues, the incarnation we said last week, continues in the body of Christ. The church, that's not merely an image or an analogy. The church is the body of Christ. The incarnation continues. Jesus is enfleshed in his church. The mission he has given us all around the world is to, in Jesus' terms, go and be me to show the Father in the life of Christ toward those around us, that they might hear and see the gospel in us. Lastly, the incarnation completes something that God started in creation. We tend to think of the incarnation as humanity was so messed up that God had to intervene and do something. God had to get involved. He's looking at this mess. What in the world has humanity done? What are we going to do about it? He looks around heaven and Jesus says, here am I, send me. That's kind of how we think about the coming of Jesus into our humanity to rescue us, to save us. And yet that's not quite it. That's a misunderstanding Actually, God is completing something in Jesus' coming, in humanity, in the incarnation. God is completing something in incarnation. He started in creation. And that's joining us together with him. We're going to be turning in our Bibles to, this morning to Genesis chapter 1. If you're using a church Bible, this is that morning where you get to turn to page 1. We don't do that often. I'm kind of excited about that. Page one, we're going to start at the beginning. Christians are the only ones who don't start, who, who don't start a book in the beginning. You know, we typically start two-thirds through. But today, page one, okay? Page one, Genesis chapter one. And let me tip my hand as to where I'm going overall big picture. I'm going to suggest to you that this thing we have been given that we know is marriage which in its best is wonderful. And yet in our human experience, sometimes it's not as wonderful. I'm, I'm reminded of the guy who said, yep, we have been married 24 wonderful years. And his wife pokes him and said, wait a minute, it's 32 years. He said, yeah, but eight of them weren't so good. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's awkwardly funny because it's also our reality. And yet, this, some, we think that, that, that we need to dig into the Scripture because there are things in this book that will inform and correct us and, and instruct us on how we can live better in marriage as if our Christian faith is given to us to improve our, our, our marriage. That's a very evangelical, very utilitarian 
using our faith to fix our lives kind of approach. But what if that's not quite right? What if it's missing something? What if marriage is actually given to us not to be the thing, marriage is given to us in humanity and not even to every human. But within humanity, within our social structure as a foundational piece of it, marriage is given to us in the human experience as an analogy to show us a greater reality. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that marriage is given to humanity as an abstract, no, no, sorry, marriage is given to humanity as a very concrete analogy to help us to understand a more abstract and thus hard to get our, our, our arms around a more abstract reality, which is our relationship as humanity to God. The relationship between humanity as God is, is spiritual. It's, it's, it's not, our, it's not the, the flesh and blood experience that we have with one another, rubbing shoulders and, and arguing and encouraging and loving and fighting. It's, it's not that. It's, it's, it's more abstract, and it's in prayer, and it's in the Spirit communing with my spirit. And, and it's hard to tangibly get our arms around that in this human life this mortal life at present. And because it's hard, God has given us a very concrete analogy called marriage that helps us to understand a, the abstract reality. Now, there's a difference between an analogy and a reality. The, reality. the reality is the end all. The reality is the purpose. It's the goal. The analogy is something that's given to us, laid alongside to help us understand the real thing. It's not to downplay marriage. Some of you are starting to get alarmed. It's not to downplay or to minimize, but to, 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 to help us to see that all of the best of marriage is actually showing us something even better. And I'll say just right up front, because this is out there. Marriage is not always what it's supposed to be. Sometimes marriage is exactly what it wasn't supposed to be, was not intended to be. And you, you may still be picking up the pieces from that brokenness and hurt. And yet, it hurts because you intrinsically, you intuitively, you know better. That inside you know that 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 is not what this marriage was supposed to be. Marriage is supposed to be different than that because still there are the shadows and the echoes of the reality in the analogy of marriage. So even in the hurt of the broken of marriage, not as it's supposed to be, we are reminded by contrast of what the reality of our relationship as human with our God is. And not merely is supposed to be, but is and will always be. So let me dive in and try to poke around a little bit at that concrete analogy a little bit with the aim of that helping, filling out, giving us a little more insight into the abstract of our relationship with God. So we come to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, where God create, God starts this, in this mess in the first place. God creates humanity. He says, let us 
Make man in our image. There's a plurality here, in our likeness. I don't think God is talking about uh, with himself and a, and a council of heavenly angels. I think this is the conversation and the intention of the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit together. Unity in plurality, in harmony together. Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth, over every other creepy and creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I'm going to put them in charge of it all. Why? Because God is in charge of it all. And we are his image bearers. Humanity is to bear his image. How do we do that? So, God created man to do that. In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, don't get to uh, gender inequality here because there's something that's about to be pointed out. Male and female, he created them. So in Hebrew, every, every pronoun, every word, in fact, in the Hebrew language has a gender, but it's not always indicating a man is compared to a woman. Here, the gender pronoun him is indicating you, you would replace that not with man but with humanity. And God created humanity not as merely a man. And not as merely a multiplication of men. Well, it's a bigger job than one man could do, so let's get more men. No, he said, so in the image of God, he created humanity. Male and female, he created them. There's a plurality here. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. My point is this. To rightly bear the image of God, humanity must have a unity in plurality. To rightly be image bearers, we cannot do it on our own. Because God is a unity in plurality. God is not God only. God is Father, Son, and Spirit in loving, respectful relationship together within the Godhead. They had a wonderful relationship going on together before any of the rest of what we know of creation came into being. And to display the image of God then requires more than merely one who's looking for others to be in relationship with because God was never needy. It takes a Oneness in plurality that God replicates, God images in the creation of man and woman together. Thus, it's not good for man to be alone because there needs to be a unity in plurality, a two coming together as one, a two who are distinct and yet are united together. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24 bear this out. Where you have the statement, it's not good for man to be alone. And we think that's all about videos and pizza. And too much of those if man is left to his own devices. But that's not the point. That, 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 that men are merely helpless and irresponsible. I was commended. I bought, I bought, I bought, one of the Christmas presents I bought for Julie was, was a, a tote for her, for her sewing machine. As they come to loving hands, some of the ladies have these really clever little totes that are made for the sewing machines. They put them in there. They roll them in. They don't have to carry it, lug it around, you know. Very thoughtful. I thought, well, you know, you could use a rollerboard for that. You could take one of her old, old roll-on luggage pieces, just put the machine in sideways. It'll fit, and you could drag it in that way. Fortunately, somehow a man still had the sense to realize that was not the answer here. But, but what was surprising to the other, some of the other ladies in the group was I actually happened to pick a very nice and pretty one. You would not expect that. How do I know? Men, go dress shopping for your wives. 
let me know how it goes. So, but somehow, I mean, the question came up, did he pick that all by himself? And yes, he did. I mean, how can that be? Because everybody knows men are helpless. Julie helps me decide what to wear. No, you can't wear that in front of everybody else. No, <laughs> do something different. And, and so, but that's not the point here in terms of it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man if man's highest calling is to be image bearers of God and to represent God and be as God toward the rest of creation. Man cannot do that alone. It takes an other. And so Adam goes through all of creation looking for an other and there's nothing and then God puts him to sleep. It's been a long day. And, and he takes out of Adam's side a rib. And out of, that, out of Adam he forms Eve. Did you ever wonder about that? God made Adam from the dust of the earth. God made everything else from the dust of the earth. Why did God make Eve not from the dust of the earth? And ladies, don't get yourselves all exalted here over this. But just think about that for a minute. Why is that? There's a theological reason for it. We'll come to it later. I'll just throw that out there and leave you questioning for now. So he creates Eve. He brings her to Adam, and Adam says, finally, now at last. He says, this is, whoops, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is one like me. She shall be called woman, Isha, Hebrew, because she was taken out of man. Actually, it's because out of man she was taken. The Isha versus the Ish for man are connected together. And it's not, it's, again, it's just a feminine form and a, and a masculine form of the same word to say that she's of me, like me, for me. In a way that a dog, a golden retriever, a, a horse, or a llama could not be. Somebody said the dog is man's best friend. no can't be one like me and yet we spend all of our lives discovering what not so like me after all a bit different from me she is like me she is for me she compliments me specifically because she is other than me the Father is not the Son the Son is not the Spirit we have something in the church we call we call patera passionistic prayers and it's basically oh heavenly father thank you for dying for me the father did not die for us the son died for us the father did not die the spirit did not die the son they are distinct and different within the godhead father son and spirit are other and yet one and so in marriage god brings alongside the one Another who is like him, but just not just like him, who is other than him, who compliments him in all kinds of ways, including physically. In all kinds of ways, she's like him, but different than him for him and her, and he for her. And in that complementary two one relationship together, A man will leave his father and mother, old family, and will cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. The two became one, a oneness in plurality. They, they, they are of a new family together in this union. There's a new family made. That bone and flesh together is used in the Old Testament to identify family relationship. They also become one in a distinctness. They, they become one flesh. 
There is a physical oneness that happens between them. This is foundational in human, humanity's experience. It's something that has been shared all through human society, and it's something that's, interestingly, in our generation, eroding in, in a recognized way for the first time. Never before has it been that marriage is not between two who are other, who are different in complementary ways. So what has happened in a, in a redefinition of marriage is a misunderstanding of humanity and God. When God is dropped out of the picture, go back to Romans chapter 1. When, when they depart from their knowing of God, then they no longer rightly know humanity either. And it plays out in all kinds of strange ways. So this foundational piece is actually not merely giving us an understanding of what marriage is supposed to be. I said it's pointing to something bigger, right? So Jesus is the image of God. Wait a minute. Humanity was supposed to be the image of God. Jesus is the image of God, of God the first of all creation. And Jesus takes on human flesh. He came in the likeness of our flesh. He came like us for us. He came especially to be like us in every way, and yet he is other than us, right? Jesus is not us. <laughs> He's the Son of God. Come in human flesh, and yet he came in our human flesh. Remember earlier, Eve was not formed out of the dust of the earth? Neither was Jesus. Jesus was not formed a new humanity out of the dust of the earth. God could have made a new Adam, a new man, Jesus. He didn't do it that way. He made the new man, the new Adam, out of our humanity, just as was originally done in the Garden of Eden. This time, the Son of God steps down and takes humanity upon himself. He leaves heaven and comes to earth and cleaves to the church, is joined to the church who will be his bride. You see, marriage is, more, is about more than husband and wife. Marriage is a continuing analogy of the enduring eternal reality of Christ and his church. That what God has done in joining us together with Christ and bringing us in relationship together with him and in Jesus as one new humanity joined in Christ, we his body, then we have this relationship with the Father that Jesus had through all eternity. And he has brought us into it with him. Everything about that relationship with the Father and the Spirit that Jesus the Son has had through eternity is now to be enjoyed by the church. Initially, in the abstract, spiritually, at a distance. In future, it will be... Remember, Jesus even used the wedding analogy when he said, I go away to prepare a place for you. He goes back as the groom to the Father's house and he prepares a place at the Father's house that he can come again and get the bride and the bridegroom takes the bride back to the home that he has prepared for us. He prepared the home for us with the Father in going away in his death for us. And just as surely as he prepared a place for you, he said, I will come again and I will receive you to myself. It's all first century Jewish wedding language. Because our experience 
of wedding and marriage, and there's, there's more of them popping up here in the church. It's, it's an exciting time. Spread the rumors. Have you heard? The, and yet these, this excitement even points to a greater excitement, a greater analogy. I said before that the church is a concrete analogy of an abstract reality. And if you had to ask, which is more important, getting marriage right or getting my relationship and my walk with the Lord right, the second one is more important than the first. And yet the two go together. I actually live out my relationship with Christ in my marriage. I actually, in living out my relationship with Christ, that is going to change and affect how I live in marriage so the two are entangled together, and yet our very concrete, real, physically tangible, touchable marriage relationship is a concrete analogy of an abstract reality. You see, God wants us to know that relationship that we have with him that we've already entered into and will continue through eternity. Jesus stepped down from glory so that we could rightly be his complement. He made himself like us, though he is different from us, so that we would be his complement, that we would be joined together, the imaging of God in all of creation for all of eternity. Why are you going to rule and reign with Christ forever? Adam and Eve were given to rule and reign in the garden. You're going to carry out what God started. But now it can finally be done rightly, fully, as it should. We're going to rule and reign with Christ together because we've been joined together with him in this complementary relationship that now we, as a new humanity in Christ, can be what humanity was supposed to be, not merely in my own marriage, but before all of the creation. You're going to see we can't do it on our own. It's part of this union together, but it's a concrete analogy of an abstract reality. There's a reality about us and Jesus that I want to poke around a little bit. First of all, it's a relationship. It's a relationship with one who is essentially other. It's a complementary relationship, marriages, husband and wife, right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's like me, but she's not like me. She's different than me. I can't figure her out. You can't figure him out either. You think you do, but it's really much more complicated than that, isn't it? Men are not as simple as you think they are. And yet, you say, no, no, they really are, Bob. I'm losing the, I'm losing the crowd here. <laughs> but the point is, then not figuring, not fully getting, where is that coming from? That's that otherness. And in our fallenness, the otherness leads to competing. It leads to conflict. The fallenness leads to fighting. But in God's blessing and in God's purpose, that otherness leads to fruitfulness. It leads to new growth. It leads to seeing things differently. It, it, it's one outside of me who, who contributes into how I see and perceive and understand things that I on my own would miss so that my sight lines are farther. My horizons are extended. I see and understand and perceive and comprehend things that on my own would go right on by. So in this relationship, as we communicate together, if we communicate together, in marriage, that happens, right? 
so also in our relationship with Christ, if we communicate with him as we are in relationship with him in a new humanity, his perspective is different than ours, is bigger than ours, is, is, is other than ours, and it leads us into new horizons of seeing things differently than we would have seen them on our own, of looking further ahead in or into eternity than we would have imagined on our own, of seeing life's present in a much greater purpose than that doesn't insist that the present must be perfect and just the way that I want it because this present is merely part of the shaping and molding that is perfecting me for an eternity. But I only know that because of what he has told me in relationship together. Otherwise, I would think God has checked out and God doesn't care because the present sometimes stinks. And yet, God is in the midst of that, working even in the midst of the fallen and brokenness to bring about that, that these, these, these uh, problems in the moment are working for us. These present sufferings are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I know that only because his perspective has realigned my understanding of the matter. I wouldn't have known it on my own. In relationship with one who is essentially other, like us but not, uh, not us, we, we, we see things, we understand things we would not otherwise that requires, as I said, it requires communicating. Do we communicate? Do we communicate in marriage? Do we communicate in spiritual life? What if we, husband and wife, and, and I'm, I'm talking to myself here, what if we communicated better as married in our prayer and our hearing from our God in his word and are processing through together what it is that God is saying and, and the things that his spirit is saying to our spirit. And we shared those things more together of our spiritual life. In our married life, what more might we get even out of the spiritual relationship? One of the things we're committed to in the church, whether it's married, whether it's um, brother and brother and sister and sister, that we are convinced that we grow better as we are growing together. We, there, there is an important part of our corporate, our shared worship together as the body of Christ across generation. And there is also an important point for, for us being part of a smaller group, a smaller connection of people together who know one another. They know me. I know them. And we're growing one another and we see things together that I would not see, understand, perceive, or experience individually. Growing together with other, other growing believers Requires communication, listening, submitting, being sure of understanding. You heard what she said, right? What you just said, that's not what I said. That's what you said. Those were your exact, but that's not what I meant. And we're so confused as to why it is that she or he doesn't say what they mean. They say things, but they mean something else by it. Have you ever read things in Scripture and you took it this way? This is what God says. Well, you dig a little deeper. Or you read a little more, bigger the, extend the context, or compare that with this, you realize, no, God is saying something different. Uh, claiming a new pony wasn't actually the point of this verse. What's true in our marriage is true in our relationship with Christ. We need to, to work at listening, at submitting, at understanding, reading, studying, praying, 
joining in things that we ourselves not otherwise do, hearing from him and responding to that in ways that I step into something I wouldn't normally do. Jesus tells the, tells the rich young ruler, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you come and follow me. Talk about counterintuitive. That was not the instruction that that, that, that young man was looking for. And yet that was the best thing he could do. That would have been how he would have known God most fully. Imagine, he turned and walked away from an opportunity to be one of Jesus' disciples, to walk and to live with him, and certainly would have been thrust um, into ministry in the rest of his life as one of those who knew Jesus face to face. Wow. He walked away from it because it was counterintuitive to anything he would have come up with on his own. You ever had those experiences where the word challenges you and then you walk away from it? God said it and you said, yeah, no. Sure we do. Sure we do. And yet, I need the perspective of other. Jesus is our other. He will show us and take us places we could never get to on our own in this relationship together. But it's a covenant relationship as well, isn't it? Sometimes we would get asked today, this whole marriage thing, is it really, well, what's the deal really? Come on, you know, you make a lot about that, but if people love each other, can't they just be together? And what's wrong with that, you know? Well, if we're going to image God, if God is anything, God is covenant. God is faithful. Now, in the midst of marriage, I understand there are times when that faithfulness is lost. That faithfulness is shattered, and hearts are broken and crushed in the process. And that also mirrors something about our relationship with God. And yet we are told in Scripture that even when we are unfaithful, yet he abides faithful because he cannot deny himself. If God is anything, God is a God of covenant. And so God has, has joined us to himself. We're going to come to this table in a few minutes. And this table is a table of the new covenant in his blood that he wrote it in his own life. A covenant that he made with us that is eternal, that is secure. And the best experience of human relationship, the best experience between a man and a woman is in the security and the full acceptance and embrace of a covenant relationship that I am yours and you are mine till death do we part. Now the fulfilling of that promise has gotten harder and harder. But the reality of that is where that best relationship together. And imagine, going on into the marriage analogy, the, the, the best relationship, the, the physical joy that a, that a husband and wife have together is in that full acceptance without any critical, without any judging, giving ourselves to one another for the other's enjoyment in ways that, that fulfills us both. And that happens in that security of not trying to prove myself to another, but to be able to enjoy and be enjoyed by the other. That's all part of a covenant relationship, a covenant security, and that's what God has done in Christ for his church. Ephesians chapter 5 describes some of this 
in the sense that, that um, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's in the past. In the present now, Christ is sanctifying his church, cleansing and washing her by the water with the word. In the future, he will present to himself a glorious church. From the past to the future, it is all seen as done, finished. We are secure in him. If God is anything, God is a covenant God. And as we guard this covenant of marriage, we are portraying the likeness of God to a world that is losing sight of what God looks like. And yet God has given it to us to show them in our relationship with him that changes our relationships to one another. Marriage simply being one of those. You could be here this morning and you're not married. Or you were married once and you're not now. And you say, well, what does this have to do with me? That, that, that marriage is one of those core foundational society, but it's not given for all humanity to be, more mar- to, to be married. And certainly through the biblical history, they are not all. In fact, Paul even talks about it being better to not be married in certain circumstances. And how could that be? Because now he's completed the analogy in the reality that Christ has joined himself to us. And the analogy still helps us get it, but everyone in this room can be part of that reality of being joined to Christ and in Christ, imaging God in the world while enjoying relationship with the Father and the Spirit in the Son. And in that relationship, there's where fruitfulness comes together. Let's talk about another contemporary issue that this was one on a list of five that the church is going to have to confront genetic engineering. A A baby can now be made without two humans, male and female, being involved. We're already there. In fact, dare I say, it's already being done quietly. Bits of information leaking out now and again. What has happened again is, is the analogy is cast aside because the reality has been forgotten. It used to be basic in human experience that it took two. It took a male and a female to make a baby. That's where babies came from. Sorry if I'm spilling the beans and some of you haven't had that talk yet. That's, that, that, that used to be normal and obvious, but now we're in an age of genetic engineering where we are determined. In fact, there, there are genetic scientists who are already declaring, give us enough time and we will create eternal life. We will be our own saviors. We can fix genetically our own fallenness. And it may continue to impact the effects of our mortality, but we can never repair the spiritual reality of our relationship with God. But God has done that for us in Christ and given us a fruitfulness together that is in relationship of two who are other joined together. So two who are other joined together, husband and wife, and they make a new child. Well, the church, in relationship with Christ, the church joined together with Jesus, there is our fruitfulness in new birth. And in spiritual growth, didn't Jesus say, you abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
what would be true in human experience is true spiritually. The analogy portrays because we could easily think. We get it right. We have the right activities. We have the right processes. We establish the right systems. Somebody asked me years ago, how long would it take if, 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 if the Holy Spirit departed from planet Earth, how long would it take for the church to notice? How long could we go on doing what we do, oblivious to the fact that the Holy Spirit has departed as the glory departed in the Old Testament? Well, that's not going to happen the way that God has built his church. Jesus has joined himself to us inseparably. But we easily think that the outcome is up to us. We easily think that the fruitfulness we, we, we talk or, or we do in relation to our neighbor thinking that their salvation is up to us. And it is not. It's up to God. So we fold our hands and go home. No, because God has determined I'm going to use you. That's why evangelism, that's why new birth, that's why spiritual growth is a combination of two together as one. There's fruitfulness. I in you and you in me, Jesus says, you'll bear much fruit. The analogy of human family portrays a spiritual reality. God has chosen not to do it without us, and it's something that we in no way can do without him. And he's joined with us, like us, for us, to bear fruit through us in the lives of others, in the lives of one another. Fruitfulness together. Finally, relating to God. Ephesians 5 compares husband and wife roles to Christ in the church. And so the husband is to love his wife, and the wife is to respect her husband. And there's something intrinsic in us that needs those things. She needs to be desired and sought after and adored. And, and, and he needs respect. If from nobody else in the world... He needs it from that one that he has joined himself and made himself most vulnerable to. And so it is. It's true in the marriage relationship because it's true between Christ and the church. He is our head. The traditional roles are laid out as they are, not because the husband is brighter, not because he is less prone to being deceived. There have been many choices that we made as a, as a, as a family together that that. I was deceived by my own will, what I really wanted, or what I was afraid of, and we didn't end up making the right choice. So the traditional roles in, in, in a human marriage as laid out in Ephesians are not because one's brighter than the other, but because of what they portray in a reality that the church, that Christians, that you and I can only be fruitful as we yield our will to his will. And so how that plays out in marriage is important and how that plays out concerning that eternal reality. It's not then for the husband to dominate because that doesn't show Christ. That is not how he relates to us. It is not for the wife to manipulate because that is not, that does not display this union between Christ and the church because the church is not to manipulate Jesus. You see, the traditional role is not just a lump stuck in the, in the, in the past way of doing things and relating together. It's intended for us to display something about Christ and God and the church to the world and to help us understand it. A concrete analogy for an abstract reality. God made us incomplete. 
men, women. He made us incomplete in ways that we need and we help each other. And yet we cannot fully complete each other. We are fully complete in our humanity in being joined to one who is other and like us. In being joined together, church with Christ, in one who is bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. Who stepped down from heaven, who left the Father's house to be joined to us, that he might bring us back into the Father's house forever. And that we, ruling and reigning with him, would be the image bearers that Genesis 1 declared us to be. Now this idea of God... A God who comes to humanity. A God who empties himself, who, who pours himself out. This was, this was unique in the Greco-Roman first century world. One author has described the first century this way. The gods were everywhere and undependable. Apart from some magical powers, perhaps the gift of, of immortality, there was little to distinguish the gods from the humans who worshipped them. They ate, drank, loved, envied, fornicated, cheated, lied, otherwise set morally unedifying examples. Not surprisingly, these gods did not care about those who worshipped them. They only wanted the honors and the offerings from people for themselves. How easily then that is replicated in our leaders or those who exercise power over others in society. What we worship is what we begin to resemble. So it was in Rome, and so it will be among us as well. The Roman society was oppressive. For most people, life in the Roman society's cities could be described the way Hobbes did. Nasty, poor, solitary, brutish, and short. Life was not good. This was the world into which Christianity was born. And still Christianity triumphed because it offered something uniquely different, uniquely other. A way of life so compelling that it outweighed even the obvious social disadvantage of being known and identified and sidelined as a Christian. In the midst of the squalor, the misery, the illness, the anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity offered an island of mercy and security. That's what God brought to the world into the church and that's then what the church showed to the world around them. Joined with him in a new life that laid aside the values of the old and a live new in the ways that he showed as we were united together in a new humanity to image God in society and creation. This table celebrates that new life, that joining together, that church and Christ, the, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, that he has made covenant with us. We are going to remember this is his blood of the new covenant given for us for the forgiveness of your sins. If that is your hope, this is a place where as those who are serving come forward, this is a place, this table is a place where we enter in into another very tangible way. We participate in that spiritual reality, Christ in us and we in him. We take his body for ourselves. We take his blood as our own life. 
And he is the one who completes us and sustains us. And he enters us. He joins himself to us. If your faith is in Jesus, who gave his life for you, for your forgiveness, for your restoration in relationship with God, then in declaring that faith in Christ, we invite you to join us at this table. But don't do it just because this is something the group is doing, because this, this is merely an analogy of a spiritual reality. If he is your Savior, then enter into again his body given for you, his blood for your forgiveness.